Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another wonderful and exciting episode of the Anthology of Horror. I'm your host and narrator, Springheeled Jack, and we're going to get started today after just a few brief disclaimers. First of all, the show might offend you. If you're easily offended, please turn the show off and spare me the negative reviews on the podcast store, or the iTunes store, whatever the fuck you call it, uh, because you won't like the show. This is your first and final warning. Second, I use advertisements in this show that I do not own the rights to. They are the creative property of Rockstar Games. That is all. Hey, do you want to feel so energetic? Try Power Thirst. Energy drinks for people who need gratuitous amounts of energy. With all new flavors like chocolate. Chocolate energy. It's like adding chocolate to an electrical store. Sound the alarm. You're going to be uncomfortably energetic. What's that? You want strawberry? Well, how about rawberry? Made with lightning. Real lightning. Sports. You'll be good at them. It's an energy drink for men. Energy. These aren't your dad's puns. These are energy puns. Turbo puns. Science, energy, science, energy, electrolytes, turbo lights, power lights, more lights than your body has room for. You'll be so fast, Mother Nature will be like, slow down. And you'll be like, fuck you, and kick her in the face with your energy legs. You'll have so much energy, energy. Uh, Just running all, all the, the time. time. Power running, power lifting, power sleeping, power dating, power eating, power laughing, power spawning babies. You'll have so many babies. 400 babies. Give chocolate to your babies and they'll be good at sports. Make your babies run abnormally fast. They'll run as fast as canyons. People will watch them running and think they're canyons. They'll race as fast as canyons against actual canyons and it'll be a tie and they'll get deported back to Kenya. Hey, go with the sure thing. Don't gamble on your energy. Snake eyes. Try Power Thirst, the energy drink that will make you sport. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another wonderful and exciting episode of the Anthology of Horror Halloween Special. I am your host and narrator, spring Jack, and today I'm going to be bringing you more stories from the sniveling fucking assholes on Reddit. And as always, I haven't read the stories until I read them to you, so the reaction will be genuine. This first one is called, Always Leave Early and Always Take the Scenic Route. After I got married to my wife, we needed to get extra shifts in order to pay for the debt from the wedding. Oh my god. Why get married if you can't afford it? That's what I want to know. <laughs> we could have bought a house, but instead we got $25,000 in debt having my princess wedding. Fucking idiot. Since childhood, she had a dream of a big wedding. She had a dream of a big wedding, but she ended up with a bride instead of a husband. Uh, okay. Her parents refused to pay a dime towards the wedding, let alone attend. Well, that's not very nice. We still had a big party and a great day, but by paying for the party made us push our honeymoon off for six months. Well, you two have your priorities confused. We couldn't do anything big, so we found a nice bed and breakfast to visit in the countryside. Four days off work was something we could afford after all that overtime. Packing up the car, we got ready to head out early in the day only to get stuck behind the worst traffic in history. We couldn't go anywhere for two hours. At least we found some good local radio stations. After we finally got on the highway, more bad luck struck. Our back tire broke, causing us to pull over. This honeymoon trip felt cursed. Uh, your whole relationship sounds cursed. You guys got in debt to throw a big party to impress a bunch of people that don't give a shit about you and just ate your food and danced and drank on your dime. You're dumb. Fixing it took a while, but I finally got it done. 
I thanked God I remembered to put the emergency kit and the spare in the trunk before the trip. By the time we got going again, we both felt starving and dropped by the first rest stop for something to eat. I wanted us to have been able to get to town early enough for some sightseeing before our 4 p.m. check-in time. We weren't going to make it. After a call to the owners, they agreed to let us check in at any time that night. <clears throat> yeah, of course they did. They want your money. Susan was glad that they were so understanding and relaxed a little after such a terrible day. With my bad eyesight, I didn't want to drive in the dark, so my wife took over for me. We kept going over just how long the route would take and decided to use a shortcut. The plan had always been to take our time in the day and drive through some of the scenic, nice, small towns. Now... Now that the tip changed to being mostly at night, the quicker way seemed better. Dinner finished and a plan was set. We got ready for the night driving, wondering what else could possibly go wrong. As we drove further and further away from home, the songs on the radio changed. It started to drift into mostly country songs to nearly all country. Better stations would soon turn, turn to static and then fizz out. The sun already set, leaving us driving down a dark and empty highway. Not even the moon out to guide our way. The only light besides our headlight was a bright display screen in the middle of the dashboard showing us what country channel the radio had gotten stuck on while scanning. I honestly thought having a screen was a hazard, but at least it was slightly better than using a cell phone. Trees and flowers flew by on both sides. Asides, aside from some, some, from some trucks on occasion, no other cars were on the road. I always hated long, dark highway drives, but at least I wasn't alone this time. Susan started to pass the time by talking about all the different kinds of pastries she wanted to try on the trip. The place Susan booked advertised an abundance of bakeries in the area, and that was the main reason we decided on the small bed and breakfast so far away. It would be nice to get away, but to also gain a few pounds while we did so. A while into our trip, I caught some movement out of the corner of my eye. I assumed it was dust on my glasses, so I raised my hand to brush them off. When I fully saw what the movement was, I froze and my heart leapt into my chest. Sneaking across the dashboard, illuminated by the light of our useless radio screen, was a pale shape, a ghostly spider, slowly taking small steps towards my poor, unsuspecting wife. She didn't like them, but I felt scared to death by them. I know they're good for eating even worse bugs, but I just can't stand the sight of them. I held back screeching, knowing that that might cause an accident from such a sudden and loud noise. As the spider moved closer to the driver's side, I let out a small whine. <laughs> hey, what is it? Susan asked, worried. I shook my head, pointing at the thing, unable to speak. I was so scared that my hand trembled and skin prickled every time the spider took a step. My wife finally saw what I was looking at. She let out a sigh, knowing we needed to deal with it. But she didn't want to pull over. With some difficulty, she slipped off her sandal while still driving to take care of the threat. I almost felt sorry for the thing when she crushed it and took care of the body with some napkins, and then I handed it to her. She tossed the corpse out the window for my peace of mind. That damn spider was so big I heard the crunch. I no longer wanted to talk about food. I'm so glad I married you, I said with a long sigh, but I still was feeling stressed. You eat my peppers, so we're even, she joked. But we made a good pair. I would gladly eat every pepper in the world if it meant she would keep any spiders from getting near me. I hoped that would be the most amount of excitement that happened during the drive. I kept glancing between the window and the dashboard, fearing I would see another stowaway creep across my sights. We drove on to start seeing 
we drove on to start seeing a fog hanging at strange angles outside. <laughs> the headlights showing a pale whiteness through the trees, the rest of the world dark beyond what our lights could reach. Even the sky appeared pitch black, no light pollution this far out and in the middle of nowhere. I couldn't see any stars because of the clouds. Seeing the spider made my nerves tense so, so much that I couldn't sleep. My mind playing tricks on me, making my arms itch from phantom spiders crawling over them. I really hated seeing those eight-legged bastards, but I hadn't reacted this badly to one in a long time. This fog is weird, Susan commented, breaking the silence. What do you mean? I started to ask until I finally noticed what she already did. The fog wasn't moving. I'd seen heavy still fog before, and this wasn't it. It looked far too solid. Frantically, I started to look at the patches of white overtaking the trees and the edges of the road, desperate to figure out what it was. I almost asked for us to pull over to get a better look, and know now that that would have been a mistake. A patch of the odd white fog stretched across the road from tree to tree, and Susan kept thinking it was too high up for our car to touch it. The roof snagged a part of the white threads, and to my utter horror, I figured out that it wasn't fog right away. I let out a scream as hundreds of spiders spilled from the white threads over the white threads and down onto the windshield. Susan screamed and nearly went off the road. She collected herself at the last second and started to use the windshield wipers to knock the abominations loose. Countless amounts of the pale white spiders clung to the side mirror and to the windows with threads they somehow attached, their small bodies flying through the wind until they were finally wiped off the car. I was losing it in that moment. I started shoving napkins into the air AC vents, thinking that spiders could get inside that way. <laughs> Maybe. My fear level was so high I was nearly seeing white and my entire body was shaking. I'm positive I started screaming and babbling nonsense, but wasn't in the right state of mind to remember any of it. My wife was also very freaked out, but decided in that moment she was going to gun it, her foot heavy on the gas to get us the fuck out of there. We didn't know what was happening and what caused this all didn't matter. We just needed to get away from it. In seconds, the heavy patches of spider threads became unavoidable. She tried to hit the smaller patches, causing so many spider bodies to be crushed on the windshield it was almost impossible to see at times. I was dry heaving, knees to my chest and arms so itchy I wanted to die. The road became so slick with the spider gore, Susan had a hard time driving in a straight line. At least we were the only ones on the road, or else we would have caused an accident for sure. I heard a voice repeating how this couldn't be happening. I was shocked to find out it was my own. I didn't sound like myself. Susan's face was pale and her palms were sweaty. She needed to deal with mom's spaghetti. <laughs> uh, she needed to deal with trying to stay on the road and with a panicking wife at the same time. There were so many of those ghostly pale spiders that I could hear them being crushed on, in, in mass as we drove over bundles of their threads. The car made an awful noise as it struggled to keep speed with the sticky spider web coating it. Was this punishment for killing every spider I'd come across in my past? I prayed that if we were spared, I would usher them outside no matter how much they frightened me. Soon the headlights were showing pure white and barely any sides of the road in front. We couldn't stop. If we stopped, those things could get in the car. How I didn't see any crawling across inside yet was a miracle, and Susan started swearing, and rightfully so. I did not want to die because of spiders. Give me any kind of death but that. I also don't want anything to happen to my perfect wife. I finally found out. I, the, the perfect wife that I'd finally found after an entire life of looking. The car made grinding noises, begging us to stop. Begging us to let it stop, but we pushed on. I saw a large shape in the masses of threads, but 
too late to warn her. The front end of the car clipped something tall and thin like a young tree. It smashed the right headlight and somehow we kept driving. I heard a terrible rumbling noise coming from whatever we just hit. It was a sound I've never heard before and never want to hear again. It sounded like pure dark rage. I thought it would follow us, and I reached out to grip Susan's shoulder, thinking this would be our last moment together. We both let out a gasp as our struggling car burst through the final patch of threads covering the road and onto a perfectly normal dark highway. My wife did not stop to investigate what we just went through. The car couldn't go go the speed limit, but, but as long as we were moving, it was fine. As much as I wanted us to drive all night, the toll of it all finally came down in full force. I started having the worst panic attack of my life. At first, I honestly thought it was a heart attack. My wonderful wife kept a cool head and found a motel only a few minutes away. She pulled in, careful not to let me see the web still clinging to the car, and got us a room for the night. She ushered, ushered me into the small, small bathroom while she dealt with everything. I cried in the shower, trying to wash off imaginary spiders until she had to gently get, out, get me out of the running water. I was so out of it I didn't even notice she called the cops until I got dressed. Snitch. The flashing lights sitting just outside our room, waking up the only other person at the motel. She didn't want the cops to show up, but after telling her story to the emergency operator, they didn't know who else to send. Our car was the proof of what we had seen. The motel staff and the guest found it all pretty interesting, and nobody wanted to get near the spider-gut-soaked car. The cops tried going down the way that we came from. They reported finding some spider nests and a whole lot of crushed bodies on the road, but nothing like how we described it. They kept looking at our car, trying to understand it all. Our honeymoon could wait. The entire experience put too much of a sour taste on the trip to follow through with it. We only lost the deposit on the bed and breakfast and the cost of the car rental. That was a rental car? (laughs) We called a family friend to pick up our car, then get it cleaned up and brought it back. There was no way we were going to drive that thing home. In fact, I wanted to sell the damn thing as soon as possible. Oh, you rented a car because you're too much of a chicken shit to drive your Subaru back. Let's do something less terrifying for our next honeymoon. It was the first thing she'd said on our way back home in a rented car running on no sleep. I thought through the options and rejected ideas we had before settling on the bed and breakfast. How about that lame haunted Navy ship over in... How about that lame, haunted Navy ship sleepover in October we didn't want to wait for, I suggested. We both looked at each other and silently agreed that ghosts were way less terrifying than a horde of spiders. And nothing is as terrifying as your terrible writing style. Thank you, Reddit. Once again, you were a disappointment. Everything you ever wanted came in a rocket can! Power Thirst Rocket Edition! With all new flavors like banana, fizz bitch, and gun! You've had the worst, now try the thirst! Quencher! Power Thirst! Side effects include glowing sweat! Use your sweaty body to fuel sweet rave parties! Power thirst. Anything is possible. The sport you'll invent because you'll be too energetic for normal sport. You'll feel like a fighter jet made of biceps. 
what about me and my blue collar? Juice Turn that every man into a beverage! Beverage stands for beverage! We interrupt this advertisement to blow your mind! Power thirst now comes in women! Now with preposterous amounts of testosterone! Preposterone! Think fast, douchefag! Power thirst now comes in doves! Oh! Hubcatting! Similar to bear blasting! Oh lord, why have you forsaken me? Cannon! When God gives you lemons, you find a new god! Power thirst! God Mary! King of the juice! Acceptable. Drink Power Thirst and you'll win at everything forever! You'll win at running, football, arson, weddings, and art! You'll even win at irony! Oh, top score! Still unconvinced? We'll check out these testimonials from real Power Thirst drinkers! Boop! 400 babies! Boop! Boop! Power Thirst! It's really- Oh! Oh! Boop! It's like crystal meth in a can! It's crystal meth in a can! Power thirst is crystal meth! Warning, may contain anacornicoba. <gasps> Speaking of crystal meth, let's get started on this next story. It's conveniently titled, I brought my girlfriend on a trail hike to propose to her, but we ran into a pack of wolves. Well, I wonder what this one's about. I'd been planning the proposal for seven months. I always knew I was going to ask Dana to marry me at some point, but it took a long time to find a memorable place to pop the question. I wanted something memorable, and I guess I found it. There was a dense national park near our city that my family hiked and introduced Dana to. She was a rock climber, so she was used to longer treks through the woods to prime spots. In the park were dozens of intersecting trails and pathways that would take even the most seasoned hiker weeks to traverse all of them. Most people just stuck to the classic four or five main trails. But on a lesser known one, there was a secluded lookout at the furthest point of the trail. Seven kilometers from the parking lot, separated from it by a dense forest and steep ravines. It was almost jungle-like terrain in the center. The lookout was a large rock slab protruding from the woods that oversaw the entire park from about 50 feet up. In the fall, the canopies below caused the entire park to look like a beautifully random patterned quilt. Dark and light reds, yellows, oranges, greens, and browns. My parents took my brother and I there and introduced us to the view. They told us that was where my dad proposed to my mother. At that moment, I knew I'd be asking Dana the same question at the same place. Couldn't come up with your own idea, Haas? Eight months later, I'd saved up enough for a ring and planned the proposal for a Saturday in the fall. It was supposed to be beautiful all day, but with a storm rolling in later at night. I figured we'd be long gone by then. We packed our usual snacks and drinks for the height and snuck a small-sized bottle of champagne into my backpack. The ring was in its box, in a Ziploc bag, zipped up in an interior pocket in my pack. I wasn't taking any chances with it. Because the other thing was, the park had become ground zero for, the growling ho for a grow growing homeless encampment. Encampment. The tent cities that populated our lower town had been pushed off the streets and into a public park, then into another, and into another. It was an impossible situation that continued to be handled the wrong way and fostered growing resentment and burst of bursts of violence. The city needed to crack down on the drug and assault problems in the encampment, so the homeless had now moved into the quickly filling National Park. I'd seen some of the homeless out and about on the trails. You could tell who they were, obviously. They weren't dressed for a hike, and they were kind of just wandering around. But, seemingly, they never bothered anybody up there or caused trouble. They just wanted somewhere quiet to live how they could. Still, it was always something that stayed on your mind when you entered the trails, especially with the large rock in the ring 
large rock on the ring in my backpack, and a complete lack of cell reception in the park. Which was why I now carried a Damascus steel bowie knife, and Dana always packed bear mace. Oh, that's cute. We set off on the trail at noon. I was aiming for us to hit the lookout by 2 p.m., propose, and be back to the car by 5 o'clock or so. We went further along the trail. Clouds overtook the sky, and very little light made it through the canopies. The woods got darker. Even though Dana and I typically had back-and-forth banter through our hikes, I'd planned to spend most of the walk going over my proposal in my head, making any last-minute changes before the lookout. But instead, I found myself thinking about the awkward walk back to the car if Dana said no. (laughs) I was doubting myself, trying to push the proposal to a later date at a location that was easier for her to say no in, like she'd feel trapped up there and would have to say yes. I don't know why I was thinking that way, but all of a sudden I wanted to rethink the whole thing. All because, for some reason, I now thought Dana was going to say no. The walk up felt extra long. On top of me trying to convince myself out of proposing, there was a strange anticipation in the air. I couldn't tell if we'd brought it to the forest or if it was already there. But something did indeed feel off, and smelled even worse. We didn't see any animals or critters of any kind. In fact, we didn't hear anything. Birds, insects, nothing. And we didn't come across a single person on the trail. No hikers and no homeless. It was just me and Dana. Finally, we started the climb up to the lookout, and I'd fully taken myself out of the proposal. I made plans in my head to wait and propose on New Year's Eve. Or maybe in the spring. Or the first day of summer. Maybe I'd wait a year. We were young. What's the rush? Then we walked out onto the ledge overlooking the vast park, and I saw the look on Dana's face that made me fall in love with her and always caused my knees to buckle. I remembered why I, why I had saved her eight months at a job I hated for a ring for her. We stood at the edge of the lookout, arm in arm, and gazed at the beautiful vista. I was thinking about how to start the proposal. I'd had the idea to begin with our first date and how it had been at a house party that, en- that ended up getting trashed. Dana and I met on the front lawn and drunkenly watched as the trees were filled with toilet paper and the house went to hell from drunken teenagers, but my memory was cut short. There was rustling somewhere behind us, twigs cracking, branches bending and snapping forward, and breathing, the strangest, pained and struggling sounding breathing I'd ever heard, and it was fast and heavy. Images of a group of homeless men with knives and used needles appearing from the dark woods flooded my mind. They'd go for Dana, they'd get her, they'd get our stuff, they'd get the ring, and then they'd kill us and bury us somewhere in the woods, or throw us over the edge of the lookout and would call it an accident. The bushes continued to rustle. Finally, something emerged, but much lower than my eye line. I thought it was a dog at first, a German shepherd or something, but it wasn't a dog, and there was more than one. There was a pack of six wolves staring at us. There was something else to them, though, something frightening and desperate and frenzied, surging behind their bloodshot eyes. It was more than hunger, and it felt to me like chaos, demented, ravenous chaos. They were twitching and rapidly blinking. Their mouths had bloody foam spilling from them. Their legs and paws were slicked with blood, dirt, and garbage. All I could think was rabies or something similar. Dana and I backed up, though we only had another five feet until the lookout dropped off. I slowly pulled my blade out, and Dana reached into her bag for the bear mace. She searched for it and searched, but it wasn't there. She'd forgotten to pack the mace. <laughs> so we're just left with you, useless to knife fight a pack of wolves? (laughs) Good luck. This is Darwinism, folks. This is what Darwinism looks like. I put my arm in front of Dana, stepping in front of her. The alpha wolf stepped forward, matching me. It had a fresh wound across its face, with blood and pus spewing from its right eye. 
The rest of the wild animals followed the alpha, though they all carried the same crazed look. I realized they were all going to come in really fast and hit us hard. The look in their eyes was telling me they didn't care if they tumbled over the side with us. There was just no thought or reason in them. They seemed to have gone completely mad. As I was readying myself to start swinging and trying to toss or shove them one at a time over the edge, Dana yelled my name. She was pointing down the side of the lookout. There was a path of sorts that you could climb down. Dana was a seasoned rock climber and I was not, but we didn't have much of a choice. Or time. So she started to climb and I got an idea. I pulled the champagne bottle out of my bag and popped the cork, spraying the bubbly all over the wolves. That bought me a few seconds before the animals reoriented themselves and came at me. But it bought enough time for Dana to climb down the side of the lookout and me to follow close by. The wolves got to the edge as I climbed down just far enough that I was out of their reach. They barked and snarled and I felt their heated breath and bloody slobber spray down on me, but I kept climbing, following Dana's path down. I tried not to look below to see I tried not to look below to see how far up we were, but I did. We were ten feet from the canopies, which would be another thirty feet to the ground. Dirt and small rocks skittered down from above, hitting my head. I looked up, and I saw one of the wolves had gone over the edge. It fell like a missile just to my left, howling and narrow, narrowly missing us and disappearing into the canopy below. Then another one came over, but it was falling directly towards me with its teeth gnashing. I yelled Dana's name, quickly instructing her to move to the right. Then I scrambled and found footing just to the side, narrowly avoiding the ravenous, wolves, ravenous wolf as it shot down beside me, but Dana didn't. The wolf's upper body and legs connected with Dana's shoulder and took her with it. Dana screamed out for me as she fell, disappearing below the canopies with the wolf. I started climbing down as fast as I could. I had no idea if the path down even went anywhere, but I kept finding footing on shrubs and rocks to use for grips as I descended below the canopies and saw thick layers of branches populating the trees. I was glad the trees were dense. I was hoping Dana had caught onto one on the way down and the wolf had fallen to its death. Then I heard her. Dana cried out for me on the forest floor. She was alive, but she sounded like she was injured bad. I tried not to think about what state she was in, and I tried not to think about the wolves falling from above, or if they'd found a way down and were going to beat me to Dana. I just thought about getting to her, and whatever state she was in, carrying her somewhere safe to wait while I got help. There wasn't a chance I could carry her seven kilometers with the wolves out there. They'd get the scent if they hadn't already. I got closer to the ground and finally looked down, and the first thing I saw were the two wolves. One was dead, its head exploded against a giant rock cluster. The other one had its lower half twisted backwards, but it was still alive and pulling itself towards Dana. Dana was in really bad shape. She was laying on her back, both legs looked broken, but one especially so with the bone piercing through the skin. She was covered in scrapes, cuts, and bruises. There were burn marks on her underarms from rubbing against tree bark on the fall down. But she didn't appear paralyzed. Her upper body was moving, as were her legs, even though they were clearly broken. But through the pain, she was crying, and very aware, and she even looked mostly mobile, kind of. The wolf was crawling closer to Dana, and it was snarling, snapping and frothing as he used its front paws to pull itself towards her. I climbed the last ten feet down in a hurry, not worrying if I fell, but I managed to find footing on each step until my feet hit solid ground. I ran over to Dana just as the wolf was getting to her. I didn't think about what to do. I just sprinted over to them and kicked as hard as I could. My shin connected with the wolf's lower jaw and snapped the animal's head back, completely shattering its neck and spine. Yeah, okay, Chuck Norris. I got down and held Dana, trying to calm her. I quickly made tourniquets for both legs out of my 
my belt and an extra t-shirt. She said her breathing was tight and her ribs felt off. She hit the canopy hard and played pinball against several thick branches before landing feet first, but she was alive. Dana knew we had to move and that it was going to hurt. She took a thick piece of wood and used it to grit down on. I picked her up. She strained and bit down, but we started moving. I still had adrenaline pumping through my veins, but we'd just hiked seven kilometers before the tents climbed down and my legs were starting to burn with the extra weight I was carrying. I knew I could make it back, but there was no way I could get us both there. Then I saw it. A medium-sized brown structure. A shack. An old park ranger post. I carried Dana to the structure, but of course it was locked. After eight heavy kicks, I managed to break the door in. Wait a minute, you could break a wolf's neck with a kick, but you can't kick a fucking door down on a wood hut for a ranger? Come on, man. Inside, we found an old first aid kit, and Dana started trying to dress her many wounds. I knew time was precious, and I told her I had to make a run for the parking lot. We needed paramedics and a police escort out of the woods. And the longer I stayed here, the sooner the wolves would pick up our trail of blood and scent and find it back to the shack. I got Dana to lean against the door after I left, hoping her weight would be enough to barricade it shut when the wolves arrived. Then I ran. Based on the direction of the lookout in the rocky path below, I knew exactly where I was. And sadly, it would take longer to get to a trail or a path than it would than it would to cut right through the woods. So I did. I didn't think I had the time to waste, especially with the dark with how dark it was getting. I could barely see up through the trees, but when I could, the clouds were dark. I knew I could run 10 kilometers in under an hour. This was 7K, but it was through rocks and twigs and brambles and through bushes and ravines. I kept telling myself to just keep a solid pace and watch for footing and I'd get there in time. But I also kept my eyes open and darting around. I kept playing the worst case scenario over and over in my head, and that always involved the wolves catching up to me, tearing me apart, and Dana not getting the help in time. Then I saw something ahead, red tarp, green, blue, then tents and clotheslines. There was a homeless encampment, but it was now a cemetery. I tried to avoid looking down, but I counted five men and two women in varying states of being eaten. Stomachs and necks were open and innards spilled out. It was terrifying. It wasn't just the people, though. Everything was shredded. The clothes, sleeping bags, boots, the small amounts of food in the camp was all over the place. It was a complete frenzy of destruction. Then I saw the bags and bags of drugs and needles all over the ground. Most looked like most looked like they'd been eaten in varying degrees. As I was making my way through the destroyed campsite, I tripped on something. I looked down and saw it was somebody's arm, chewed off at the elbow. Clutched in its hand was a small calibre revolver. I didn't want to touch it, but something inside of, inside of me told me that I needed it, so I took it. I started running again. But I let doubts float through my mind, whether I'd make it in time, whether I was even going in the right direction, and whether the wolves would catch up to me or not. I told myself, if I could just make it to the parking lot, if I could make it there to get cell phone reception, if I could just get an ambulance and the police, and if we could just get to Dana before she freezes or bleeds out, everything would be okay. My thoughts were meshing together in a feverish blend. I couldn't really tell what I was doing anymore. My body was on autopilot, just ambling forward. Then I heard the howls behind me. I turned briefly to see shadows darting through the darkness of the woods. It was the wolves. They'd found my scent. My adrenaline kicked back into gear and my legs pumped up and down faster. I clutched the gun in my hand, waiting for the animals to get closer. I didn't want to waste any bullets just hitting air. I heard sets of paws behind me and I turned back, firing off three rounds at the quickly gaining shapes. The chase behind stopped for a moment before the wolves continued after me. I had no idea how far I had left before to go, but I knew I couldn't keep this up for much longer. 
Finally, through the trees ahead, I could see red and blue lights. There were sounds of sirens, of men, movement. I ran towards it. The sound of the wolves were gaining again. I turned back and fired the two last rounds at the pack, causing them to spread out. I burst out of the woods and onto the entrance of the parking lot. The joy I felt of my feet hitting cement was short-lived. A gunshot roared out and I felt my shoulder tear open. I fell to the ground. I'd been shot. I had no idea why I'd been shot, but saw several police cruisers and officers filling the parking lot. Behind me, I heard the wolves, wolves coming out of the tree line. I turned and saw the main wolf, the scar-faced alpha, leading the way. The wolves got ten feet from me before the police finally saw the situation and opened fire on them. The wolves were all killed, and I was quickly rushed, rushed away in an ambulance. I told the cops to go in and get Dana in the ranger outpost, and I would, wouldn't leave until she was safe. But I didn't have a choice. I was taken to the hospital for the gunshot wound to my shoulder. It was explained to me that the police officers had been called to a disturbance at the park and possible deaths were occurring involving a homeless encampment. What had happened was a pack of wolves had been driven south looking for food and came across the encampment in the park. They'd eaten the food, which had been kept with a very assortment of drugs. The drugs sent the wolves into a feverish, insane frenzy and they began attacking people in the park, leaving 15 dead, 12 homeless, and 5 and five hikers. Wait a minute. In the park, leaving 15 dead. 12 homeless. Five hikers. That's not 15. The police didn't know about the wolves when I burst through the trees and out into the parking lot. All they'd known is that they had been called out there for a disturbance involving the homeless. They'd heard gunshots, then they saw me, a bloody and dirty guy with a gun, waving it around as I ran out of the forest like a madman. A nervous green officer got trigger-happy and fired the round that caught me in the shoulder. It was understandable, I guess. I was lucky he was the only cop who shot, actually. I went into surgery immediately, but tried to fight and but tried to fight and push it until I knew if they'd found Dana or not. A few hours later I woke up. Two police officers were there, and they had informed me that Dana was found, and she was still alive. After two weeks and multiple surgeries, doctors had managed to save both of Dana's legs, ribs, and fix the heavy internal trauma and hemorrhaging she'd suffered in the fall. The park was cleaned up and a group of new staff were hired to patrol it. And as usual, there wasn't a solution for the underlying problem, it was just swept off to another park. I went through a few months of physio for my shoulder, Dana went through a year and a half, but she made it, and she was jogging and rock climbing as well as before. A few weeks ago, we hiked the trail again to the lookout, and she said yes. Wow. Useless. But moderately interesting, I suppose. Sure, you work at an office. Sure, you do Pilates. Yes, your wife earns more money than you do. But don't let anyone tell you you're not a man. Let them know you're a tool. You tool. The do-it-yourself mega hardware store for guys just like you. Real tools. Guys who don't need to hire a plumber or electrician. Guys who do it themselves. Tools. Blue-collar guys aren't geniuses, and neither are you. Demonstrate this to your wife once and for all at U-Tool. Buy a circular saw. Any guy can use one of them. Wiring is for ninnies. Wire like the pros and make your house a safe place you can be proud of. Show that wife who's boss. The guy with a belt full of gear and the house under control. Show your wife who the family tool is. U-Tool, the mega hardware superstore. Women can't stop reading. It's way more than a book. It's a worldwide phenomenon. 
Chains of Intimacy, the love story, an erotic thriller, perfect for a long, steamy commute. I'd never wanked much before, but now I'm obsessed. It's great. Chains of Intimacy by Terry Bolin, the novel that proves if you spend enough money on a woman, she'll let you piss on her. I'm throbbing like a steam train down here. Available in all good bookstores now. Chains of Intimacy by Terry Bolin. All right, let's see. This next one is called The Boy in the Devil Costume. I hate Halloween for many reasons. I have to answer the door every ten minutes. I have to pretend like I'm excited to give shitty kids free candy. I have to stay inside because driving on a road filled with crazy running children gives me panic attacks. Seems like breathing on your own gives you panic attacks, slick. I plopped down in the chair by the window. Hordes of children in garish costumes ran down the sidewalks, shepherded by tired mothers. I saw it as a group of children crossed the street and started towards my house. Ding. The doorbell chimed, echoing inside the house. I heaved myself up, grabbing the bag of Milky Ways, and walked towards the door. Trick or treat. Five kids stood on the doorstep. A couple of princesses, a Batman, a devil... I unceremoniously grabbed handfuls of candy and plopped them into each kid's bag. One murmured thank you and the rest were ungrateful little fuckheads. Can I have more? I looked up. The devil kid was staring at me, holding out his bag. His blonde hair shone in the porch light and his eyes were a piercing ice-cold blue. There was something oddly familiar about the little shit, but I couldn't place it. Yeah, sure, I replied. I dropped a few more Milky Ways in the bag. He didn't thank me. He just silently turned around and fucked off my porch, following the other children. I slammed the door shut and returned to my perch by the window. I watched as the four children walked off my lawn, joining a mother at the end of the driveway. Then the group disappeared into the shadows of dusk. Scarcely two minutes later, the doorbell rang again. Ding. I grabbed the bag of Milky Ways and tromped the door. I straightened my blouse, plastered a smile on my face, and swung the door open. Trick or treat. A similar mix of kids. Two Elsas, Marshall from Paw Patrol, and a ninja. How scary you all look, I said sarcastically. They giggled and swarmed around for the candy, all except for the ninja. He stood back from the rest, silently watching. His entire face was covered with black cloth, save for his chilling blue eyes. Thank you, the kids cheered and stepped off the porch. As they did, the ninja kid stepped forward. His eyes glinted under the porch light, and even though his mouth was covered, I could tell he was not smiling. Can I have more? he said. My blood ran cold. It was the same voice. I stood there in the doorway, frozen. The Milky Way bag hung limply from my hands. There's no way he could have changed costumes that fast. How can it be him? This must be some kind of goofy-ass joke. Can I have more? he asked again. I snapped out of my thoughts. Yeah, sure, of course, I said. I threw a large handful of Milky Ways in his plastic jack-o'-lantern candy bowl. That, that's when I noticed that it was empty. If he'd been trick-or-treating all evening, how could it be empty? Hey, I said, are you okay? But he had already turned away, running back across my lawn. In seconds, he was gone, camouflaged into the dusky shadows among the fellow trick-or-treaters. I sat back down on the chair and stared at the floor. I didn't want to look out at the swarms of kids anymore. I just wanted to be left alone. Those blue eyes, I know I've seen them before, and not under good circumstances. Whenever I'd seen them before, something bad or embarrassing must have happened at the same time. Seeing them again filled me with an inexplicable dread. I ran my fingers through my hair. Maybe he's come to my house last year, but that didn't make sense either. Last year I'd been over at my ex-boyfriend Drew's house. We'd gotten into a terrible fight that lasted for hours, and I left late. 
I hadn't handed out a single piece of candy. Tap. My head jolted up. Tap, tap. Through my own reflection in the glass, in the dark shadows of dusk, I, I could make out something. A pair of blue eyes. I jumped back with a terrified shriek, then I grabbed the cord and pulled. The blinds dropped with a clatter. Thump, thump. His footsteps raced over the damp grass, fading into the night. Who the fuck is he? I didn't have time to think about it. Ding. I didn't move. I didn't want to answer the door and see that shitty kid again. Ding, ding. But I also couldn't listen to the doorbell ring for ten minutes. I heaved myself out of the chair, forced a smile, and swung it open. Trick-or-treat. My eyes glanced over the trick-or-treaters nervously. A fairy with curly hair, an, in an Incredibles boy with brown eyes. A little girl in a tutu. None of them were him. I breathed a sigh of relief. Here you go, I said with a grin. I was so relieved I gave each of them about ten Milky Ways. They squealed in delight and scampered back towards their parents. I slowly pushed the door closed. It squeaked, squeaked against the hinges and then slammed shut. I returned to my chair. I glanced at my phone. It was 8.19 p.m. The din of the children outside was finally fading. When I peeled back the blinds, the flow of the little costume figures was heading towards the main road. Within 20 minutes, the noises faded to silence. I flipped through a book, checked my texts, and got comfortable. Then I heard, ding. I picked up the candy bag, which was now nearly empty. Only four fun-sized bars floated around at the bottom. I hope it's not more than four kids. It wasn't. It was just one child. He was wearing some sort of a werewolf costume. The outfit was black, tufts of fur haphazardly taped to his body. On his head was a hideous mask. The plastic snout was contorted into a snarl, revealing yellow teeth. Fake blood dripped from its mouth, caking the fur on its shoulders. Do you want some candy, I asked. My voice started to waver. I glanced at the road and it was empty. All the kids were gone. A terrible dread sunk in my heart. My hand quivered on the doorknob. Can I have more? I slammed the door in the little shit's face. I clicked the locks. I ran to the back door and locked it. I closed the windows. Then I threw myself into the chair and sobbed. The costume was familiar. Horribly familiar. The yellow, sightless eyes, the pointed plastic teeth, familiar and alien all at once. I wrapped my arms around my knees and sat there, motionless on the couch, listening to the silence. Thump. I jolted up. Thump again. My heart throbbed in my chest. I whipped around, looking for the source of the noise. Hello? I called. Thump. It was coming from the living room. I squinted into the shadows, trying to make sense of the shapes, and I couldn't see the silhouette of the floor lamp. I could see the silhouette of the, the floor lamp near the window, the bulky outline of the couch. Something stood between them, something short with a horribly contorted face. Can I have more? The voice quietly called out of the darkness. How did you get in here? I scrambled back into the family room. The golden light enveloped me and felt slightly better. He's probably just some lost kid, I told myself. I'll call the police. They'll find his parents. It's all just some misunderstanding. We'll find your parents, okay? I said, choking back the fear. Let me just make a call. We'll get you home safely, all right, little buddy? He didn't reply. Instead, he took a slow step forward. As he came towards the light, I saw there was something terribly off about him. His head was tilted strangely to one side. His left arm was twisted and mangled. With each step, his body lurched forward unnaturally. Are you okay? I asked. There was silence. The fake blood that dripped from the werewolf's snout now soaked him. His pale little hands were covered in red, shiny liquid. The black outfit glistened in the light. The fur was caked and matted. Can I have more? I backed into the family room. I fumbled for my phone. It was gone. I grabbed at anything I could find, and my hands latched onto the nearly empty candy bag. This, I asked, is this what you want? The child didn't reply. He took a step forward. Here, you can have it, you little shit. In my terrified state, I threw it at him. The bag bounced off his chest and landed at his feet. He didn't pick it up. Can I have more? I gave you more. 
He looked at me with those horribly familiar yellow eyes. Then he stopped. He stood just about a few feet from me, bloody hands hanging stiffly at his sides. I took a step back and hit the wall. I was cornered. Who are you? I yelled. My plan to stay calm and call the police was long gone. I descended into panic. Why won't you leave me alone? The tiny black pupils fixed on me, and he spoke. For the first time, he didn't ask for more. Do you remember me? I don't know what you're talking about. Do you remember what you did to me? His high-pitched, lisping voice was muffled through the mask. Do you remember what you did a year ago? One year ago. A year ago was Halloween night. How could I forget? I was storming out of my ex-boyfriend's Drew's house, fuming, swearing I'd never see him again. Slam. The sound of my car door cut sharply through the night. The engine revved underneath me. The headlights blinked on in the darkness. I wasn't paying attention. I was thinking about our fight. I didn't even glance behind me before I backed out of the driveway. Thump. I never even saw him. The black werewolf costume against the night rendered him nearly invisible. It was over before I knew what was happening. When I ran out of the car and saw the broken, mangled body of a little boy in a werewolf costume and, the, and ripped the mask off the face to see his lifeless eyes staring back at, up at me, I didn't call the police. I didn't call for help. I panicked. I got back into the car, drove over the grass, and peeled out of the neighborhood before anybody could see what I'd done. Do you remember Eliza? The child cocked his head at an even greater angle as he stared at me through the mask. Do you remember now? I do. I choked through sobs. I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to. I was upset. I wasn't paying attention. Can I have more? I looked up. He'd taken off his mask, and the left side of his head was crushed. Blood dripped down his face, staining his pale skin, caking his blonde hair. One ice-blue eye was squashed deep into the socket. The other was perfectly intact. His neck was bent at a horribly unnatural angle. Can I have more? he asked. His lips parted to reveal shattered teeth, a scarred tongue. Can you have more what? I asked. Can I have more time? More time? More time alive. I wish. I wish I could give that to you. My breath shuddered in my throat. I wish I could give you life. You can, he replied. His voice suddenly became raspier and darker. Just give me yours. I stared at him, numb and weak. My heart ached for the poor, pathetic, mangled child in front of me. It was all my fault. I ran him over. I did this to him. I can't give you mine, I said. I backed away further into the room. He advanced quickly, walking towards me in a swift, lithe strides. You don't have a choice, he said. What are you talking about? His mouth widened into a crooked grin. Trick or treat? I bolted from the door. I yanked the door open, ran across the yard, screamed out into the night. I didn't stop until one of the neighbors found me, standing in the middle of the road, absolutely incoherent. That was a year ago. In two days, it'll be Halloween again. I've already seen him, a small figure across the street, dressed in all black, watching me, waiting, wearing a hideous werewolf mask. Not bad. And on that note, squad, check back tomorrow for another episode. And uh, thank you very much for continuing to tune in to the Halloween special. I'm your host and narrator, Springheel Jack. If you'd like to reach out to me, you can do so. On Instagram.com slash DukeLandis17. That is Instagram.com slash DukeLandis17. Thank you very much for your time, and until next time, stay spooky. (laughs) 